from PRX. Stew. Stew. D. D. F. F. Studio. That's it. Right? Studio. 360 with Carl Anderson. Kurt Anderson. Kurt Anderson. I listen to it on the uh, radio in my car. Oh, don't be sniffy about it. I'm not pens. being sniffy. I think I'm you a, are. No, no. You've got a nose for it. Oh, gosh. Wow. What are you saying over there? Today on the show... Usually in the morning, I get out of my bread and I start my day. The washing machine bounces up and down. The trees bounce up and down. Yeah, I mean, I think Alex is a unicorn. Keep listening. Stay right there. Don't go anywhere. Stay sit. You might have heard our Studio 360 news. We have moved our offices and studios to Slate Magazine... So while we're doing that this month, we'll be sharing on the show some of our favorite segments from the past year or two. This week, the screen, big and small. It's Saturday Night Live! For a comedian, getting a job on Saturday Night Live is a big deal. Really, the big deal. Featuring Jenny Slate! Jenny Slate got that job at age 27, and in her very first appearance, she made one of the worst mistakes you can make on live TV. You freaking just threw an ashtray full of butts at my head? You know what? You stood up for yourself, and I love you for that. You're in my heart, babe. You're in my heart. Jenny Slate lasted only a year on SNL, but shortly after, she made a little stop-motion video with her filmmaker husband. It was about a character she called Marcel the Shell. It got more than 23 million views on YouTube and launched a best-selling children's book besides. Since then, Slate has been on shows like Parks and Recreation, House of Lies, Kroll Show, Bob's Burgers, and Married. In 2014, she starred in the film Obvious Child, a romantic comedy that revolved around abortion. Jenny Slate, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. So you were on Saturday Night Live for yes. a season, uh, and and you said since that you didn't find it a very good fit. Um, mm. How what do you mean by that? How how so? Um, I'm just, I guess, too freeform, and I don't react well when there's a lot of fear in the environment for uh-huh. a reason that I don't understand. Uh-huh. Um. And, the, and, yeah. and 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 when you say fear, just because there are places, and we all know them, and some of us have worked in them, where where that's part of the culture, and and that was that was true there for you. For me, I mean, you know, there's this, there's like the fear of Tuesday night writing night. Like, will people accept you? There's the fear of the table read. Like, and it's just, I don't know. I just some. I guess sometimes I I felt myself being like, well. One day we're all going to be 85. I hope we're proud of the way we're acting here. Yeah. I don't think we are. Yeah. You know, and essentially we all just poop in a toilet. Like, why are we acting like this is the biggest thing in the world? We're not. We're just trying to be entertaining. Like, what happened to the beating heart of it? I just, I don't know. I, I just felt very incorrect. I felt very bad about myself. Uh-huh. And obviously... Saturday Night Live is a thing for comic actors and comedians. Like, that's that's the place where yeah, you can, totally. it can be your launching pad to movie career, TV career. When when you left that job after a year, did you say, well, I'm, that's it for my career? Did you have that feeling? I was embarrassed, for sure. It's embarrassing to be fired. Um, I felt sad because I liked everybody that I worked with a lot. Like, everybody was genuinely really nice. And I 
think I felt relief to be free. Uh-huh. But mostly I felt relief because I felt like I'm so competitive in terms of trying to get things right. Or I used to be that way more so than I am now that I was like, I would have stayed there. I just would have stayed right. um, just to try to make it right. So rather better, than, better you that know. the bad marriage ends quickly. Yeah, I think so. Um, your career didn't miss much of a beat looking back now. And I wonder if you think it would have recovered mm-hmm. as quickly as you did in in a non-internet age. It seems like the web and, oh, yeah. and all of that allowed you to like just get right back up and there be in everybody's faces and be funny. Yeah, I think you're abs- absolutely right. I was so ready to be creative again when I left SNL just to exercise those creative muscles. I never expected that like when my husband and I made Marcel the Shell that it would become a viral thing or whatever. I just I didn't think of it that way. But I was very happy to just be doing something that I could never explain. Like if you if I went into um a, te- a television network and was like I'd like to make a series about a male shell but he's not like a sea animal but he has a googly eye and then shoes and it's just a documentary about nothing about him they'd be like that's this is a zero (laughs) zero percent idea even in the age of a (laughs) hundred channels that would be a hard pick hard hard sell Um, you gotta just do it this this stop motion animated video you made marcel the shell with shoes on was the first one became as you say this gigantic gigantic viral hit you now have a, a second children's book based on that character called Marcel the Shell, the most surprised I've ever been. Yeah. Um, so it's a franchise for you. Can you read <laughs> a little bit of that book sitting in front of you? Sure, Which I'd I, love to. Whatever bit makes sense to read. Um, I wrote this book with my husband, Dean Fleischer Camp, who also is the director and animator of the Marcel shorts, I should say, and also a cool person. <laughs> He's a nice man. One thing about a new day, you absolutely never know where it will go, even if you usually know where it starts. Usually in the morning, I get out of my bread and I start my day. I don't read the newspaper because it turns my shoes black. And I can't have coffee because one time I took a half a sip and I didn't blink for five hours. But that's not the surprise I wanted to tell you about. I wanted to tell you about the day I got the most surprised. That's Jenny Slate reading from Marcel the Shell, the most surprised I've ever been as Marcel. Yeah. <laughs> Had you done that voice forever or did that? No. Really? I've never done it before. That It's weird. It, it's weird. I don't know how it happened. Um, I mean, I do know like when I, I started doing it over one weekend where I was um, – I was packed into a motel room with, like, so many boys, and I just felt really small, and I started talking in that voice. Uh, well, I, it's, <laughs> it's, I mean, the books are lovely, the video's lovely, but the voice is a big part, don't you think, of why this has been successful? I think so. I love the voice. Yeah. I'm not allowed to, to talk in it um, in our house, like, in some situations, and I talk in it too much sometimes. Do you? Really? Yeah. Just in real life? Yeah, and sometimes I talk to myself in it, like, my... The other day, my friend, I was looking for something in my purse, and I was like, Oh, I'm never going to find it. Oh, God, I just, there's too much garbage. And he was like, is this what you do? You know, and I just, it feels good to talk in it, and um, I don't know why I like it. And does your husband like it, or Um, or does it just like, yeah, enough? He likes it, but he doesn't like it when I do it to try to get out of doing stuff. 
like taking out the trash or oh, like walking the dogs. Being being super cute. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. I'm not allowed to do that, and I'm also obviously not allowed to do it during romantic times. But I would never do that. Uh, you work with your husband mm-hmm. um, productively, seemingly, and again and again. Is it hard to to balance to not only both be in show business but to work together? Is that a it's sometimes thing? sometimes yeah. it's hard, but I do feel very creatively comfortable around him. Between all this other work you've done, you, you made a web series with your husband called Catherine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's this very eerie uh, kind of David Lynchian comedy um, consisting of these short two or three minute episodes, um, which is also, it's innocent, like a, like a workplace mystery written by a child or something. Yeah. I want to play a clip from Catherine where you're returning to work at an office um, and I should say in advance to listeners uh, that it sounds like not much is happening. Um, and I get, and Catherine is not a hugely plot driven, action packed thing. But uh, <laughs> the smallest exchanges are have this great sense of dread. Good morning, Catherine. Hi, Samantha. You don't have any pins yet, and you don't have any paper. Right. Well, if it's like before, I'll need to use them. It is like before. How many would you like of each? May I please have three pens and 100 sheets of paper? Sure. I have rubber bands if you want those. (laughs) No, thank you. I'll go get the pens and the paper. Thanks, Sam. You're welcome. Jenny Slate <laughs> laughing at herself. I love Catherine. I think it's the funniest thing I've ever done. I think it's so funny. It is very funny. <laughs> and and it's, it's perfect in a way for two or three minutes. <gasps> it, it can be that weird and stylized because it only lasts two or three minutes. Do you know? Yes, that's part of the joy of it. It really, like, it started with my husband and I being really irritated at, like, Verizon commercials and stuff like that. They're like, the whole tone of them is, like, awkward. You know, like, people looking to the side and being, like, so, you know, and just, it's just, well, it's unbelievable. And we asked ourselves this question, like, what would it be like if everything was completely earnest and, and sincere and straightforward and that, and we're not trying to do anything except for keep it totally neutral. Right. And it became like a game and we could, we started to write it together and could tell when things were too much. You know, like when they're ordering lunch, if the sandwiches were too jokey, you know. But like sometimes the sandwiches are just right and they make you laugh so hard the more you think about them like plain chicken with plain bread. No, it's like the Truman Show of banality or something. Yeah, I really like it. I'm I'm really uh, I'm really proud of it. So uh, while you're trying to become a big star and be in bigger movies and be on TV, you do this just because you have enough hours in the day to uh, to to exercise this other creative channel? I guess I, it just becomes so important to make sure you do those things, especially in an industry that's very risk averse and where things are, can often be seen as a product before they're a piece of art. You know, I mean, not to like sound like a douche about it, but (laughs) I, when I met Dean, what I loved about him right away and why I wanted him to stay forever was because I, I thought of a life together where we could just make stuff and just be living in that in like a biodome of our 
creation and and living with those expectations that we can just live with creative stuff around us. And, and by the way, create this book. Well, yeah. Given all this stuff and you just want to do these things you want to do because yeah. they seem cool, do you, do you have a career you look at and say, yeah, that, that, that one there, that looks pretty good to me, uh, how that life went? Hmm. I guess if I could have some sort of combination of like a – really functional, like Charles and Ray Eames situation. I, I was thinking that myself. With Dean and then be kind of like a Ruth Gordon type of person who's like a lady who's really, really old and, and still in complete possession of her creative choices and, and her sexuality. And married, married to a director as well. Yeah. Like Garson Kanan, you know? You could be the Eameses. You can be Ruth Gordon and Garson Kanan. You, you got it. Yeah. I grant you your wish. Thank you so much. I never knew I was going to get it, but I, I didn't know when I came in here today this is what it would be. But, yeah. <laughs> Jenny Slate, it has been a pleasure. Uh, I really enjoyed meeting you. Thanks. Me too. Thanks for having me. I talked with Jenny Slate in 2014. Her new movie, Landline, is out now. Coming up... One brave critic does the unthinkable. He proclaims his love and admiration for The Godfather, part three. People told me that I was supposed to dislike that. And they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic. But cinematically, it's riveting. That's coming up on Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. Studio 360. This month, we're settling into new offices and new studios with our new colleagues at Slate Magazine. Slate makes some terrific podcasts, such as Hit Parade, where the Slate writer, Chris Malamfi, tells the stories behind big pop songs. A recent episode was about some of the parallels between Elton John and George Michael and their friendship. It included this bit about Elton John's career when it took off in the early 1970s. From his next chart-topping album, the double LP Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, John scored a string of smash hits, including the album's title track, and finally, the album's biggest hit and another number one, a curious album cut that Elton resisted issuing as a single until it broke on black radio in Detroit. It was a blend of strutting R&B and glam rock, plus fake crowd noises and arena echo that imitated a live concert, and lyrics by Bernie Taupin, imagining a fictional fan letter to an invented band, fronted by a woman wearing electric boots and a mohair suit, called Benny and the Jets. That was Chris Malanfi. His Slate podcast is called Hit Parade. As we're settling in here at our new studios and offices at Slate, we decided to share some of our favorite Studio 360 segments from the last year or so. 
This week, we're playing some of my favorite recent Studio 360 stories about movies and television. Moonlight won the Academy Award this year for Best Picture, but one of its most remarkable achievements is for a thing they don't give Oscars for, casting. There are two major characters, Sharon and Kevin, who in the early part of the movie are young kids. You're funny, man. Why do you say that? In the middle are teenagers. What you doing here? Detention, man. And then in the final part are grown men. It's not what I expected. Well, what did you expect? The filmmakers needed to hire six different actors to play those two main characters. So how did the woman in charge of casting respond to that challenge? A fellow casting director said she deserves a purple heart. <laughs> that was very generous. <laughs> That's Jesse Ramirez, the casting director for Moonlight. The film's set in Miami, and to find the actor to play the youngest version of the main character, Chiron, her team spent weeks looking for kids in South Florida interested in acting, but not so experienced that they were auditioning for theme park ads or making jazz hands. You know, if they have training to be very happy and, and expressive and if they had done a bunch of Disney TV shows, like, I think that that is difficult to shake that and to, and to pull that back. It was at a middle school near Miami where the casting team found Alex Hibbert. So I went and the director, he kept telling me to do it in different, like, different actions, like sad, happy, mad, and stuff. And then he made this face. He was all like, you, you. Alex plays the youngest version of the main character in Moonlight, Chiron. In Chiron's part, when you go and watch the movie, if you go and watch the movie, he doesn't talk a lot, but his face expresses how it feels, what he wants to say and stuff. And for acting, you don't have to talk, but your face could say it all. Again, casting director Yessi Ramirez. Alex is a unicorn, honestly. Um, I think we got really lucky with him. He He's not at all like the, the character that he plays. Um, he's full of life and, and um, dances and moves around and just he's, he's a ham, basically. But there was just something really spectacular about him and behind his eyes. He was able to convey so much that was unsaid. You don't talk much, but you damn sure can eat. <laughs> That's all right, baby. You ain't got to talk to you. Get good and ready. My name is Chiron. People call me Little. That's Alex Hibbert with Janelle Monet and Mahershala Ali as his unofficial foster parents. Yessi Ramirez was at her office in Hollywood when I reached her. She told me that for her and the director, Barry Jenkins, the hardest part of casting Moonlight was casting the teenage versions of the characters. That's the age when Chiron and his friend Kevin first get sexually intimate. There was a lot of actors that didn't want to take the risk because of the sexuality. And I think a lot probably had to do with, you know, the age level, you know, and not not being confident in their career that they felt like they could take a step like this. And, you know, whenever we'd reach an obstacle like that, I would tell Barry and, and he would say to me, yes, see, that's why we have to keep doing this. That's why we have to keep doing this. And does part of your job become a kind of 
selling this idea to them or oh, counseling them? Like, oh, no, this won't ruin your career. Or oh, definitely. Is that part of the conversation? Yeah. Well, it's definitely, I mean, you know, any project that I take on, I have to believe in it and be able to sell it and pitch it to agents and managers for their clients and trying to sell them on the idea. Hopefully now this will help them realize that maybe they should have done it and mm-hmm. maybe um, maybe in the future they'll consider um projects like this a little bit more seriously. I want to play a clip of teenage Chiron and his friend Kevin when they are stumbling toward their first sexual encounter. Sound like something you want to do. I want to do a lot of things that don't make sense. I didn't say it don't make sense. But tell me, like, like what? Like, what a lot of things. That's Jarrell Jerome and Ashton Sanders. For the fully adult version of Chiron, you cast an actor named uh, Trevante Rhodes, who um, physically is much bigger and stronger looking than the two actors you play at a younger age. And I remember as I was watching the film, it, you know, it took me a couple of seconds to make sure, like, is that is that the same guy? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and, and so... Ordinary, I can imagine you'd think, oh, no, this guy is too beefy and to, to play this character. What was the idea that, no, 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 we would make him be physically different to suggest a a, a life path that came between the two characters? Or, or was it just an accident? It Initially, it, it wasn't an idea. Um, you know, and when I read the script, like, I never envisioned the character to be the, the physicality that Trevante is. And that is why when he came into audition, I had asked him to read um, the adult Kevin role. Um, yeah, the, because, the, the friend of, yes, of the main character. Yeah. Yes, Andre Holland's role. Um, and when he came in and started reading, he just had such a vulnerability in his eyes and, and a kindness and a sweetness and a um, just he just had such an emotional control of of himself but in a way that gave you so much in the room and i think eventually it made sense to us when we saw trevante come in and read that that line that was in the script before trevante read um when he's talking to adult kevin and he says i built myself up i built myself up um it made sense to me that he built himself up he created this exterior for himself to protect himself remember the last time i saw you for a long time try not to remember Try to forget all those times. I started over. Built myself from the ground up. Built myself hard. And when he said those lines in the room, because eventually we brought him back. Uh, Barry had then left to Miami, and so he came in to read just with me um, the actual role we thought he was right for. And when he said those lines, I I, I teared up. <laughs> well, that's the thing. As you say, uh, the, the vulnerability that he showed as a little skinny kid is still there and all that. But then you see this big man doing it, and it's just, it's all the more moving. Yes, yes. So... Just a year ago, the campaign and meme Oscar So White was exploding. It seems like there's been actual progress the last year or two, including two acting nominations for Moonlight. Congratulations. Do you think there's been a change in the industry generally in the last year or two um, 
in, in people being more open to casting people of color? Well, I think films like this definitely help. I think it's about, you know, when I make lists of actors and when I audition actors, even if it calls for a Caucasian male in their 20s, I try to change it up and bring in um, some diverse options as well and, and try to present them in the best light and hope that that my creators and directors and producers um, see the, the advantage as well. And do you actually get uh, scripts say that call for a Caucasian actor in their twenties. Does it say that? Um, yeah, a lot of times. Yeah. <laughs> so, so when you uh, are doing your best to suggest non-white actors for this role or that role, are, do you feel like filmmakers are, are listening more now than they did four years ago? I think so. I mean, I think it's important. Like I was saying before, that I think that we stand up for for projects. You know, if you're approached to do a project that that doesn't represent the community in its truest form, I think it's important to to let that filmmaker know. And I think um, I think definitely projects like this are are motivating and and inspiring people to to make more projects like this. Um, I'm sorry, I have like three actors waiting outside. Right well, that, what, what, what a perfect way to end this. Uh, thank you, so sorry. No problem. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was casting director Yessi Ramirez. And thanks to reporter Nadej Green and WLRN Radio in Miami for their help. A lot of the time, the movies that are nominated for Academy Awards and win really turn out to be among the great enduring works of American cinema. But not always. There are the obvious but ordinary injustices, like in 2006, when Crash won Best Picture, beating out Brokeback Mountain. But maybe the most baffling of all was 26 years ago when Another movie was up for seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture. In retrospect, those nominations seem preposterous because it is a movie everyone loves to hate. Except this guy. My name is Ted Joya. I'm a writer that focuses on music, movies, literature, and popular culture. And my guilty pleasure is The Godfather Part Three. Really? Godfather Three? The credits from the second Godfather are better than Godfather 3. Massacres are a lot like sitting through Godfather 3. Once is enough. You like the third Godfather? I've never met anyone who liked the third Godfather. I admit it in public. You've desecrated a classic film. This is worse than Godfather 3. Whoa, whoa, hey, whoa. Let's not say things we can't take back. Now, I have a, a, a different view of this film. I believe this is the essential conclusion to the Corleone saga. I think all of us, we remembered how great the first two movies were. And when we saw the third one, I'm sure I'm not alone, but the poor casting of Sofia Coppola really was a disappointment. Why are you doing this? Why am I doing this? You're using me just to pull the strings. Dad, I want this to bring me closer to you. And the Michael Corleone we see in the third part of the installment, he's beset by diabetes, he's got self-doubts, he's got anxieties. I don't think Pacino was ever completely comfortable in that role. When I'm under stress, sometimes this happens. To come to you on such a delicate matter, it was difficult for me. 
But I also see the other elements that really deserve more credit. I mean, there are extraordinary scenes there. There's an opening scene where uh, Andy Garcia, uh, as Vincent Mancini, has uh, two people try to break into his apartment, and, and it's a very vivid scene in how he deals with them and dispatches them. I want to do something to convince you. Don't get frightened. Don't do any sudden movements. Just watch me, all right? Did you hear what I said? Okay. There's this amazing scene where a helicopter tries to do a hit going through the ceiling of, of a hotel ballroom. I know people told me that I was supposed to dislike that scene, and they pointed out all the reasons. It was not at all plausible or realistic that if you were going to, to kill somebody in the mafia, you would not rent a helicopter. I mean, this is every step of it made no sense. But the actual experience to me of seeing that scene is exhilarating. I mean, remember North by Northwest, which someone tries to kill Cary Grant with, with a crop dusting plane? Well, you know, give me, a, give me a break. No one in their right mind would ever commit an assassination with a crop dusting plane. But cinematically, it's riveting. I'm a sucker for gangster movies. I'll watch The Godfather every time it's on TV. I'll watch Goodfellas. I mean, I'll watch these over and over again. I probably know a ridiculous amount of dialogue memorized that I will ad-lib in my own true life experiences from day to day. And these movies celebrate vengeance. They celebrate the vendetta. And the brave thing that Coppola did in this final installment is he breaks away from the formula. In the first two parts, Michael Corleone is able to wreak vengeance on his enemies. People have become accustomed to the gangster winning these battles. This is a very dangerous message to, to send to people. There's a moral lesson. There's a lesson. I know this word moral sounds very heavy, but there are lessons for our own life. The true story of the Godfather trilogy is not a man who does all of these acts of violence, but his attempts to extricate himself from the web they tie around him. Go on, my son. Go on. I ordered the death of my brother. I killed my mother's son. I killed my father's son. And I think people find that uncomfortable because they want to feel that Corleone will triumph. He will achieve all his goals. He'll legitimize the family. He'll get them out of... Uh, criminal business and into legal activities. People are rooting for him at every step along the way. He has to pay the price for his power hunger and for all the moral laws that he broke in his rise to the top. And I think him faltering and suffering so tremendously from all the violence that he inflicted on others, I think the story of the Corleone family does not make real sense unless you have this final installment. A bigger problem is the casting of Sofia Coppola, who is out of her acting league here. She's supposed to be Andy Garcia's love interest, but no sparks fly. Francis Ford Coppola's daughter had to bear the criticism and the pain and the suffering of him making this particular decision. And the, the odd irony of this is this is the exact echoing of what happens in the plot of The Godfather Part Three, in which the daughter pays the penalty for the overreaching of the father. Mary! So in a way, even in its flaw, The Godfather Part Three emphasizes the key message that you get out of the movie. I think audiences back then weren't ready for it. In many ways, I think audiences are more prepared for it now. When you look at Breaking Bad, 
the main protagonist, started out with heroic qualities, but with each passing episode and each passing season, he became more of a villain. Skylar, all the sacrifices that I have made for this family. I believe the same thing is true of The Godfather Part Three. I spent my life protecting my family. Back when it came out in 1990, I don't think people were ready for a character that morphs the way Corleone does and is eventually punished for all his bad decisions. But nowadays, we're able to accept that level of sophistication. And this is a movie that I believe, at some point in the future, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, will be recognized. Just when I thought I was out. As one of the finest American movies of its era. They pull me back in. Ted Joya's book, How to Listen to Jazz, is in bookstores now. And I should say, by the way, that even though it was nominated for seven Oscars, The Godfather Part Three did not win a single one. A reminder that sometimes justice prevails. Is there a movie or show or song or building or novel or any piece of art that's unfashionable or unpopular but that you love, a, a true guilty pleasure? If so, record a voice memo on your phone explaining your guilty pleasure and why you think it's actually excellent and send that to us at guiltypleasures at studio360.org. We might invite you on our show to talk about it. That's guiltypleasures at studio360.org. Up next... Temp music. Spotting. Source music. Streamers and punches. Mickey Mousing. The A-list film composer Carter Burwell explains the lingo of his trade. That's ahead in Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate. This month, we're settling into our new offices and studios with our new collaborators at Slate Magazine. And this week, we're playing some of our favorite recent Studio 360 segments about movies and TV. When I talk to any kind of artist or maker on this show or even in real life, I love learning the nitty-gritty of their work, including the jargon they use, which is why we've launched a new Studio 360 series called Terms of Art. That's where I talk with all kinds of artists and impresarios about the terms and phrases peculiar to their creative fields. In one of my favorite installments we've done, I, I got a lesson in film composer lingo from Carter Burwell. Carter was playing in punk rock bands in the early 80s when a friend asked if he wanted to take a stab at writing the music for a super low-budget movie. It was being made by a couple of fellow young nobodies in New York named Joel and Ethan Cohen, and it was called Blood Simple. Turns out Carter had a knack for scoring films, and he has since done the music for most of the Cohen brothers. He's also worked with Todd Haynes, Charlie Kaufman, and Spike Jones, among many other directors. 
So I asked him to come in and walk me through the soundtrack lingo. First thing I asked, what is temp music? It would send shivers up my spine when you say it. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it is a, it's the bane of my existence, and uh, it's, I, I'll explain what it is. When a director and an editor are editing the film, it's not uncommon for the editor to want to put some music in there just so that when they show the scene to the director, it's, you're feeling yeah. something, something's happening. So it is done all the time. Uh, virtually every film you've seen has had right. temp music put into it. You as the audience member probably don't know what it was, although if you actually thought hard about it, maybe you would know because the next step is they, they bring in a composer and play the movie for him with that temp music right. in there. They've been living with that temp music for a couple of months. Right, and they suddenly be, it's the music. It's the music. It's like writing a novel and saying, and this character is going to be played by Jack Nicholson, this one by Ryan Gosling. So do go crazy with whatever you want to make them like, right? <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly. Um, and when you're watching a film uh, that you had nothing to do with, can you say, oh, I see how this went? Yeah, can you well, reverse engineer as you're watching? Yeah, unfortunately, you can. And I think that if now that now that the listeners know about temp music, you go back and listen to a lot of film scores, you might begin to say, "Oh, I can imagine what they put in here for temp. I can imagine what they put in here for temp." And I, you know, it does result in lawsuits. I know Danny Elfman told me once that one year Vanity Fair is doing their their Oscar issue where they put all the composers together. They do a, a layout for each craft and. The composers would not all agree to be in the room at the same time because they'd all suit each other. That's Every one funny. of them had suit some, someone and, else and, in the room. And, I'm tr and again, Danny Elfman, great big composer of television and film uh, scores. Um, do, do directors ever, as they must, I guess, like, oh, the temp was so perfect. Do they ever say like, and it is perfect, and that's what I'm going to use. Sorry. <laughs> well, I like it when they do that, actually. I, I prefer... If you're going to try to make me sound like something else because you think that the other thing is perfect, you should just go ahead and license that other thing. So 2001 A Space Odyssey is a famous example. And the opening notes of the film, which people now know as 2001 theme, I guess, of course, is, <laughs> is a piece by Richard Strauss from 70 years earlier. one of the most awesome cinematic musical experiences of my young life in 1968. So I, I never knew uh, that there was a score, right? There was a score, that's right. Alex North had been hired uh, as a composer. I think he had done Spartacus. and For um, Kubrick. For Kubrick. And uh, these classical pieces had been put in as temp music. You know, a little bit frightening probably to face as a composer, but Alex North did face it, and he went ahead and he wrote a score. And he's a great composer. Right. As I understand it, somehow it skipped Kubrick's mind to tell him that they had never actually put the score in and had went that they had in, in the end just gone with the temp music. And it wasn't until Alex North saw the film. Oh, that, well, here's here is the opening of his score uh, for that same scene uh, in 2001: A Space Odyssey. Which, hearing that, I, I'm thinking, whoa, 10 years later, John Williams, Star Wars. Yeah, well, no, that's right. So, 
The next term of art we want to talk about is spotting. What is spotting? So spotting is the first sort of official step in a composer working on a film. It's where the composer sits with the director, usually the film editor too, and we go through the film, stop and start from the beginning, saying, okay, there should be music here. It starts here, it ends there. And that's our first chance to say, what is the intention of the music? What what am I going to bring to this film? Do the directors say, oh, like a little bit of this Schoenberg here or a little bit of, you know, Prince here. Is that how the conversation goes? There are definitely directors uh, who are capable of doing that, maybe who do that. Yeah. But I have to say, if I sense that a director knows what they want, that makes the whole project less interesting to me. And right. I, I, you know, I don't really want to right. do that. I don't want to do a project where the director says, okay, we, you can see what this is. Let's just do it. Do you, all things being equal, would you rather have a director who is musically knowledgeable or like just not? Well... I have dealt with directors who, well, I'll say Michael Mann, he's known for, you know, being the guy who tells you how the how the buttons should be stitched on the costumes. And I, I went through a film with him once and, he's, and he literally said to me, we're watching a scene, he says, I think strings, A minor, D minor. <laughs> wow. But we didn't, I knew that if he's doing that then at the spotting session, we were not going to be able to survive each other. It was not going to be yeah. a pretty picture. The next uh, term, I suppose, would come up, might come up when you're spotting. Is that, is that how we say it? You're That's spotting right. with the director? We're spotting. Uh, is ironic scoring, which is a phrase I'd never heard of and I love uh, that idea that that's a term. So uh, a director asks you to score a scene ironically. Is that how it happens? It is a thing that can come up at the spotting. Uh, take any, any film. Take uh, Being John Malkovich. Uh, the Spike Jones movie that you also composed. Which I also composed. We began to gravitate towards the idea that, well, the, the most disturbing thing, the most uncomfortable thing for the audience would be if we took the story seriously and you actually believed it was possible to go into someone else's brain. But Dr. Lester... I am not Dr. Lester. I am Captain Merton. Take these characters that could be kind of cartoony and make them real. I don't understand. It was 90 years ago that I discovered a strange portal... And I found that this portal led to a vessel body and that I could live forever by leaping from vessel to vessel. You could feel the emotions that were right. involved, and that would be the most uncomfortable and disturbing aspect of the story. So that's, you might say it's ironic. But it's counterpuntal. It's, count, it's, yeah. it's counterpuntal to, to what you're seeing. Yeah. It is, for me, honestly, the way that I see the world, to be honest. So it is often my first reaction yes. to a film is to say, okay, what am I not seeing? Right, right. Source music. What is source music? Well, source music is uh, is music that appears in a film f coming from a source on the screen. So a uh, radio, a uh, record player, that's called source music. In the more academic world, it's called diegetic music because it's coming from the diegesis. It, uh, it issues from the diegesis what? of the story. <laughs> yeah. But that's definitely one more syllable than you'll hear in Hollywood. <laughs> yes. Uh, so typically in Hollywood, you distinguish the source music from the score. And they're distinguished in terms of the function they serve in story because source music is often chosen by the people on the screen. Someone puts on a record. So right. you're, that's telling you that person's choice. Whereas what I write is uh, 
first of all, is coming from where? You know, no one the knows. The ether. <laughs> That's right. God. And it's there more to manipulate the audience. It's, uh, it, might, it can sometimes be telling you something about the character, but it's a different type of thing. I, I'm interested when they blur uh, sometimes in films, and I'm going to play the film you composed, a scene from Miller's Crossing by Joel Ethan Cohen. So two gangsters show up uh, at the house of the character played by Albert Finney, and he's trying to relax and listening to Danny Boy on his record player. So we see the record on the old-fashioned phonograph. He's chilling in bed. And so this is source music because he's playing the record. Of That's right, we see the record. They enter. They fire. The Albert Finney gangster kills one, jumps out of his house, burn now burning house. So, so we're not in his room anymore, right? And but the music is going on. That's correct. When we first heard it, you know, you heard the scratches in the record. It was treated, but once we're out of that room, now the music is full. It's coming from all the speakers in the theater, and it's being treated as score now. Well, the mix, really, scores. Uh, yeah. we sometimes say. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, there's a new term of art. <laughs> As he walks outside now with his Tommy gun, he kind of carries the song with him. It's 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 now it's him. It's, right. it's Albert Finney. He put the record on and he just brings it with him. And it tells you something about him. It's the song as you you know hear. It's very relaxed. The tempo is down. Although the shooting is going on, the music isn't pumping things up because he's very relaxed. He's walking calmly down the road with his Tommy gun, uh, carrying on this uh, this battle. And that's him. It's, it's telling you about his, his character. We had um, Frank Patterson who's singing. He came in and sang this for us. He really got into it. And we'd say, okay, can you hold that note until the car hits the tree? And then when it explodes, you resolve the note. And he did that. He was, he was really into following the picture and um, but yes that's that's a place where a piece of source has now become a piece of score but I think for uh, for pretty good reasons because it's yeah. about Albert Finney's character really yeah. in the end so You've spotted a movie with the director. You've written the music, dealt with the sourcing and the scoring. You're not done. Um, what are streamers and punches? A, a phrase I've definitely never heard. <laughs> well, it really goes back uh, to the history of how films used to be scored. Conductor would stand in front of an orchestra in a recording studio. Orchestra's looking at the conductor. Behind them is a huge screen, and the film is being projected on that screen. And the conductor has to conduct the music so it stays in sync with the picture and a lot of times there are specific beats you have to hit I have to be at this bar at this moment I have to be at this bar at this moment so the way that was achieved was they would uh, take a crayon and and draw a line across the the film going from one side to the other and when it way that appears on screen is as a line moving from left to right streaming across the the screen and telling you that by the time that line gets to the right side I've got to be at bar 31 and you know uh, so that's a streamer. Punches um, 
were a way of giving the conductor some metronome information, basically. It'd be just they'd actually take a punch, like you'd punch paper with, uh-huh. and punch a hole in the oh. film, like where every beat was or maybe where every bar was. So he'd see this white dot, and he would know if he were had to speed up a little. The conductor would know if he was in time to meet his obligations to the picture. And and do you conduct when you, after you compose your music? I conduct, uh, yeah, all my sessions. Wow. It's, that's the fun part of I my job. I would think the most fun. It's the most fun, yeah. And, and and are you? Is it like we've seen in the movies about movies? Is the movie like screening in front of you? Well, it's these days. It's screening in front of me, but on a tiny screen. Right. I'm sorry, they don't really do it that because way it's anymore. These days. It's these days. So it is a big kick. You know, I I, I spend ninety five percent of my life by myself in a room. Yeah. That's what I do as a composer. But for that, those few days when we're recording, it's uh, you put it's on an ascot <laughs> and tails, <laughs> exactly, and uh, and an and an imperious tone, and uh, yeah. uh, that's right. So as you're syncing the the movie with the music, that can be done very tightly, where every bit of action, da da, and then it can be more freely flowing. That's just a stylistic choice of the director and you. It is, and when music is too synced up, there's a term for that. Well, yes, if. <laughs> There is. It's called Mickey Mousing. If the music, you know, hits as a beat for every visual beat, you know, that's called Mickey Mousing. It goes back to uh, those early uh, Disney animations where as the characters bounce up and down and the, the washing machine bounces up and down and the trees bounce up and down in t- time with the music, everything's moving always in sync. And we can even see, as we listen to this, we <laughs> see Mickey walking. That's right, exactly. Are you ever accused of being... a Mickey Mousing? <laughs> I don't think I've been accused yeah. of, being, of Mickey Mousing, no. I, but there are a lot of film styles, types of films that do require that. Right. There are, you know, action films where whenever some something crashes into something else, or, you know, of course there's a beat of music there. And I'm happy to say those aren't the types of films I typically work on. Right. But, you know, I don't know. There may be some, maybe in the animation world, they use the term Mickey Mousing as a as a more affectionate term. But when I hear <laughs> it, it's usually a pejorative, I have to say. Yeah. Carter Burwell, uh, this is fascinating. And uh, thank you very, very much. Thank you, Carter. That conversation with Carter, because it was just the two of us, what we in professional radio broadcasting call a two-way. When there are two interviewees, we call it a three-way, and even some of us snicker at that. What are the special terms of art that you use when you're plying your trade as a painter of murals or in your special effects studio or your balloon art business? Let us know at studio360.org. And that's it for this week's episode. Studio 360 is produced by PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our technical director is... Louis Mitchell. Our producers are... Sam Kim. Skylar Swenson. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. And our intern is... Claude Gillette. I'm Kurt Anderson, and thank you very much for listening. R.I. Public Radio International. Next time in Studio 360, the comedian Aparna Nancherla went to high school with a bunch of brainiacs. Some of them didn't have the social skills to, like, remember to wear two shoes every day. 
But they had, like, the ability to create a robot that would do it for them. Back to school. That's next time on Studio 360 from Public Radio International in association with Slate.